Redbubble is a massive disruptor in the art market. And I mean that in a good way, because for a change, the artists get paid for their work. Yay. This is a Melbourne success story. Now, Redbubble has over 450,000 artists on the site creating original artwork. They have 10 million site visits per month and over 7 million customers. That's a lot of traffic. And the copywriter who helps them get all that traffic is Jason Toon. Today, I talk with Jason about his journey from being a punk rocker to superstar copywriter and why that subversive sensibility served him extremely well and set him up to become the successful copywriter he is today. Hello, I'm Bernadette Short, and this is a podcast for those looking to reinvent their lives as a copywriter and who want some inspirational and practical tips on how they can do it. If you'd like to learn more about how you can get started as a copywriter, check out copyclub.com.au and discover the practical tips and hints you need to find your first copywriting job. Jason Toon, copywriter extraordinaire. I have some fast facts for you. You grew up in? I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, USA, kind of right in the middle of the USA. And you studied what at university? I studied journalism, but I did not finish my degree. I um, didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was a punk rocker at the time and wanted to just, I went hitchhiking. I played in bands, stuff like that uh, for a couple of years. And um, by the time I started to know what I wanted to do, it was, uh, I was already kind of doing it. <laughs> and what was that? So, uh, so something to do with writing. So um, it actually took me quite quite a bit of time to settle on that. Um, and I had a child along the way when I was fairly young. Um, so, you know, I worked in bookstores. I just did a lot of different stuff. I even had a spell as a web designer in the very early 2000s when having a copy of Photoshop and knowing a little bit of HTML was enough to set up shop as a web designer. Um, but I was always writing along the way. You know, I was always, I did, uh, whatever freelance work I could come up with. I put out zines, um, <laughs> I was always writing. And so, um, you know, as I got to be aware that there was this field called copywriting, um, I just just got into it, tried to do as much of it as I could and uh, had some happy accidents along the way. And what was your first copywriting job? So when I was doing stuff like web design, um, I also worked at a nonprofit for a while doing communications and fundraising. So I was always doing copywriting with those other things. Uh, but really my first, um, my first jobs were just freelance jobs in St. Louis. So St. Louis has a um, fair number of uh, corporate, corporate headquarters for a city its size. And so there's actually, um, you know, there's, there's a decent amount of work there for a copywriter. So I just went to every agency in town, went to every um, sort of creative placement kind of temp agency um, and got a little nibble here, a little nibble there and built it up into, you know, a career. So it was really just um, whatever, whatever I could get at first <laughs> as a freelancer. And then my first full-time job was when I started working at Woot.com in 2004 which we will definitely do a deep dive into. I have a question when you talked about just writing anyway, were you aware that you were writing copy? Because a lot of people are actually writing copy without realizing it. Was that something you, you felt? Yeah, so not at first, you know, but 
Um, but a lot of things, a lot of times when you're writing, I mean, to me, it's all, it's all writing, you know, to me, it's all, you have a message, you are, you have an audience, you know, um, so when I'd be writing something about a band that I liked, you know, I was trying to convince people that this band was really cool. When I was writing about, um, I don't know, something political or something just sort of, here's a funny story, you know, I was trying to get a point across. And so for me, like the transition from writing, writing to copywriting was, I, I, I mean, I, I'm not even sure where I'd put the line. <laughs> I completely agree because I get often asked, what's the difference between a copywriter and a content writer, a digital writer, an advertising writer, a marketing writer? It's all the same in my book. I know there's those lines of distinction between education and selling, but you've, you've really nailed it there, Jason. It's like you've got a position, you've got a market. How do you convince the market of your position? And I think right. that's why we, if we can, we, you know, we chuck up what the role of the copywriter is. It's more of a persuasive um, communicator in any capacity, written, spoken, you know, I think um, that's when you can really extend what the role of a copywriter can be. Exactly. Yeah, I think I think it's easy to get hung up with those different disciplines on the sort of tools of the discipline. But at its heart, when you step back, it's the same. To me, it's the same set of skills. You're just filling different, different vessels, sort of. Yeah. And where are you currently working at the moment? So right now I work for Redbubble, which is a um, marketplace for artists to um, sell their designs uh, on products printed printed for you when you order. Um, it's We're based in Melbourne actually, but um, we also have an office in San Francisco and uh, the, the US is kind of um, Redbubble's main market. So it's kind of funny. I moved here to Australia to work for Catch dot com dot au um which only sells in australia and new zealand so i had to learn a whole new set of jargon and references and even you know had to get used to the different spellings and even though i'm still in australia now i have to switch back because redbubble uses us style but um yeah i do uh, some marketing stuff and my main purview is kind of our all of our on-site copy we're um getting all of the on-site copy tooled up on brand um, it's kind of evolved in different directions over the years, and it's just time to kind of get the whole orchestra playing the same tune. I would, no pun intended, obviously. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. You're right. <laughs> like you never heard that before. Um, I do want to tell a funny story about how you and I met because um, listeners may not know, but I've just uh, completed the ghostwriting project of a, of a book. Uh, a non-fiction business book for a man called Gabby Libovich and his brother Hezzy, who were the founders of catch.com.au and also the founders of Menulog and Scoupon and um, very involved with Luxury Escapes and Vinamofo and a whole bunch of other brands. And I was very fortunate to be picked by Gabby to be the ghostwriter. So I'm three months into the job, Jason, and I'm writing this piece and uh, it's, a, it's an 80,000 word project. And I'm really struggling on this particular section. It's about the culture of catch. And it was a really important thing to Gabby to get it right. And I, I just don't think I could, I, I couldn't get it right, you know, because it's quite a complicated message. Anyway, without me knowing, he goes to you 
<laughs> contacts you and asks you to write it, right? And then he sends it to me, go, look what Jason did. This is amazing. This is exactly how it should be. And I go, do you know how that makes me feel? Thanks. Sorry about that. Yeah. So I feel like, say, well, do you want to maybe get Jason to do the whole book? You know, because I'm like, I don't know if I can complete this because this the quality of what you created, Jason, was so amazing. But, you know, and you won't know this, but it really helped me because when I saw your style and the way you did it, I thought, okay, Gabby loves that. I'll try and copy that. So it gave me a little bit of a, a plank, you know, to sort of leverage from because your writing was so good. So I just wanted to let you know that. Oh, thanks. Thought, oh my God, I've just <laughs> lost my job. On the other hand, uh, you, you really did help. And it was a really nice piece in the book, but um, let's talk well, about, you know, I was, I was marinating in that culture every day when I was at catch for you know three years so I kind of had a little bit of an advantage there. and it showed as well in the content because it was quite a complex you know culturally you know diverse organization and with lots of um, great things that they did but let's actually on that topic because that man was quite integral to your career today I'm talking about Gabby Leibovich yeah. let's talk about Woot Let, what is Woot because that was where you kind of started so tell us about what Woot does so Woot was the first daily deal site. And people who've never heard of Woot always sort of uh, look at me a little skeptically when I say that, but it was before Groupon. It was before any of the others. It was 2004. Um, and it's funny, uh, <laughs> a friend of mine told me that his brother was starting this website that would sell one thing a day. And uh, this friend of mine was, he also worked at an agency and I did a fair amount of work for this agency. And so when he said he was leaving to do that, I was just like, ah, are you crazy? That's never going to work. You know, I give it six months. Well, within six months, I was, I was working there. And, um, and if you think about 2004, if you think about who's buying things online in 2004, especially when they have to jump through weird hoops of checking every day and having it just be one thing, you know, it's it, mainly geeks, right? It's mainly like techie, geeky people. And the products we were selling were mainly electronics, not exclusively, but mainly so we knew that a our customers knew their stuff you couldn't you couldn't take something from three years ago and try to tell them it's the latest thing they're gonna they're gonna know and they're gonna write you off forever if you even try it also um we knew we could draw on kind of a pool of kind of cultural references so in our copy if we wanted to make a joke about you know lord of the rings or doctor who or whatever we could do that with this audience and not only would it be more fun for us, but it would help us connect to them and, and help us be like, um, you know, hey, we're, we're just like you, because uh, we were, frankly. And um, the founder of the company, Matt Rutledge, and his brother, Dave Rutledge, who was the creative director, um, were really into going, I think, a lot further than most entrepreneurs would when it came to like just establishing this connection. So the first thing I wrote, I don't even remember what the product was, but you know, I was coming from a, I had this punk rock side personally, but professionally I was coming from a pretty straight copywriting background. And so the first piece I submitted, uh, Matt Rutledge, the founder, sent it back and said, yeah, this is, this is good, but it's too positive and it's not weird enough. And I was like, okay, cool. I'm, I'm home, you know? Um, so we just, you know, we just went nuts with that and it, and it went really, really well. You know, we at one point had a projector that we called the world's worst projector and sold 800 of them in a day. Um, 
you know, we could just be, we could do things like um, we had a kind of choose your own adventure thing with our product copy. Once we'd expanded beyond one thing a day, um, we did a thing, and this was very early, where the Nintendo Wii had just come out. That's how long ago this was, 2006 or whenever it was. And we couldn't get our hands on any, um, but we did have some of the most recent PlayStations. So um, we sold these PlayStations with copy about how we wanted to sell these so we could use the money to go buy a Wii. So that was how we could, uh, you know, take advantage of the fact that a Wii was coming out, even though as a discount retailer, we couldn't get any, any Wiis. So they just had this great like prankster spirit that not only was fun, but it worked with the business. That's what made it crucial. Um, if you were a bank or a auto mechanic, you would not necessarily want to take this approach. Um, but it was just a dream job for me. And, and would you say, is it a long stretch to say that the copy was instrumental in the success of the company? Well, I mean, I feel a little weird saying it, but yes, um, <laughs> it was a, a crucial piece of the company. I mean, if you think about the company as, you know, a stool with three legs, like um, one of it was our, our buyers were great at finding discounts. Our um, salespeople were really good at, because um, we also did wholesale. So we had a, a really good sales team. Maybe there are four legs because our tech team was also really good. They were always a step or two ahead of where everybody else was. Um, but then also, yeah, the brand, the copywriting were a huge part of it to the point where, and this is very bizarre for a copywriter, but to the point where um, it got to where we were signing autographs, the writing team, uh, we'd go to CES, the big consumer electronics show in Las Vegas every year and people would want autographs. We did a Reddit uh, AMA and ask me anything on Reddit that got, you know, 1200 questions or something like that. As a copywriter, you're used to working behind the scenes. So that was, that was pretty, pretty cool. We got interviewed on um, National Public Radio, NPR, the big uh, public radio network in the U.S. So um, yeah, it was, it was, I think, a big part of Woo. And then it led eventually in, in 2010 to Amazon acquiring Woo. And um, I moved from St. Louis to Seattle. We worked at Amazon headquarters. Um, we were able to expand the team for a while. Uh, I think when we went up there, our, we had four writers and it got up to nine eventually. Um, but also like, I don't think ultimately Amazon really, it still kind of mystifies me that they bought Woot because they didn't really understand that this was something that existed and was successful because of a community. Because we had, that's another thing I didn't mention, the community at Woot was huge. We had these forums that would get thousands of posts a day. Um, we had to hire several moderators. That's back when forums were a big deal on the internet. Um, so, I mean, that probably would have withered eventually anyway, but, but Amazon certainly kind of didn't help. And so like, they kind of didn't really get the counterintuitive side of it. They always, they wanted it to be original and wacky and fresh without ever being confusing or controversial or whatever. And it just doesn't work. You have to, you have to, if you want to be original, that means some people aren't going to get it. And Amazon kind of wasn't, that's not how they work. You know, it's not how they succeeded and more power to them, you know. <laughs> well, they've done okay, haven't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they've done all right. But um, 
anyway, so I stuck with Woot at Amazon for a few years. And then um, a lot of the original people started leaving. And so I did as well and went back to freelancing for a while. Um, but Woot was actually, unbeknownst to me at the time, had gotten the attention of a couple brothers in Australia who thought it was a really funny idea, thought it was a great way to sell stuff. And so the Leibovich brothers were big Woot fans. And I think Gabby particularly liked that prankster side, that counterintuitive side, that outrageous side. And so, um, you know, in 2016 or so, um, they were rebuilding their marketing team. I'd been, I had a little bit of contact with them in the couple years before that, but, um, but then it started to get serious and they were like, hey, we're building this marketing team at Catch. We're um, bringing people in from all over the place. And frankly, for me, um, not having a college degree, a university degree, not having any particular technical skills, um, to get sponsored for a work visa in another country was like uh, a winning lottery ticket. You know, <laughs> there's so much had to happen for that to happen that, um, and you know, I was getting older. And so I was like, okay, let's give it a shot. I, managed to get my wife and daughters on board and we moved to Melbourne in 2017 and uh, we're, we're still here. <laughs> wow, what a great story. And what it demonstrates is the power of talent. You know, if you're good, people will notice, you know, and you've obviously, your, your reputation was international by this point because Gabby exactly wanted your voice, you know, and I think that's what I, I say to my copywriters when I'm training is that your particular take on the world like you talked about your punk rock background your bands you know that sensibility is you and that influences and infuses your copy and and when people try and flatten that out I I try and say look you've got to be what the client wants of course but it is that unique voice and what would you say to that yeah I mean that's definitely it so especially for somebody like me who like I said I I did not um have this career path laid out in front of me when I was 18 you know so for me like um I was always going to be a step or two behind the people who did that and who sort of knew the industry and got it, got the internships and all that kind of thing. For me, my perspective was really all I had, you know, uh, my voice, whatever you want to call it. And so um, I think actually there were times when I was, when I got in my own way for not having the courage to step up with that, you know. Um, especially when you're just starting out, you're desperate for anything. And yeah, you, you obviously, a lot of things go out that you wish were better or whatever. But, um, but it was only when I was sort of given a little more space to be weird that I was like, oh, wait a minute, this is what I should have been doing all along, you know. And when you can, uh, when you confuse that then with, you know, knowledge about what works, about about the industry, you know, I, I never set out to be an e-commerce specialist, but that's most of what I've done. And I think at this point, I've learned a fair amount about the industry to where um, combining that with that sensibility, then that's a, it's a pretty rare thing. And it's managed to keep a roof over my head so far. Mm. And in terms of your process, you know, let, let's talk about how do you approach a job? You know, if there's a copywriter listening who has got a client, blank sheet, about to take a brief, what what uh, what's your process for getting inside the head of a client? So I like to start by trying to separate out for, for myself which of 
let me think of how to put this. When they have an idea, when a client has an idea for what they want, um, trying to pull apart what is the problem they're trying to solve and what is their attempt to solve it. So like um, a lot of times an initial brief or whatever, it's a, it's a mixture of those two things. And they're generally clients, they know what problem they're trying to solve very well. Their idea for how to solve it is what they're looking for help with, even if they kind of don't realize that it breaks down like that. You know what I mean? So they might think that such and such an approach is the way to go. Um, but I think for me, I like to get straight, okay, what are we, what are we trying to do here? Not, um, we need a, you know, a Snapchat campaign, but like, what is the problem we're trying to solve with this, you know? So like, so for me, that's just getting it straight in my head, like what the aim of this is, is like kind of the first thing I'm trying to tease out without being too obvious about it, um, but trying to sort of separate that out. And then for me, then it just goes into like this, the part of the job that people who aren't copywriters think is not actually working, where you're <laughs> just thinking about it, where you're writing, you're just brainstorming, you're combing through lists of synonyms, you know, you're just trying to get a handle on kind of the language that you're going to be using because part of that problem solving step is knowing who your audience is and knowing the emotional response you're looking for. So like just trying to do as much kind of, I don't literally draw sort of word clouds, but it's, it's sort of like that. Just my computer has tons of just notepad files that are just raw text of word, 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 phrase, word, phrase, slight tweak to that phrase, whatever. To me, there's, you've got to work through all of the, um, all of the language around what you're trying to do. And, and you know, obviously 99% of that stuff is just goes in the bin later. But, um, but for me that it's almost like I have to learn a language, <laughs> if that makes sense, where there's like um, a set of kind of vocabulary or emotional terms or whatever around a project that I have to just soak in. Is that language of the client or the product category? What, what's your parameters for who, who owns that language? Yeah, so, so it's, it's, it's all of it. Like obviously if there's terminology for the industry or for the product that I need to know, like that's a, that's a big part of it. But then extrapolating out um, from the, on the sort of emotional side of what the point of this is. So if we're selling uh, vacations, you know, you're going to have a very different emotional angle than if you're selling home security systems, which are <laughs> a completely different set of emotions you're playing on. So just trying to, this sounds very vague, um, but at this point it is vague, you know, at this, at this point in a project, when you're first getting your head around it, you've, you just kind of need to see what the what the landscape is sort of verbally around this project, if that makes any sense. This yeah, might so when, when you're, crazy. what I'm, I'm wondering if you're talking about the same thing that I sort of sometimes refer to, which is the reasons why people buy. I don't think we are, but I, I talk about the, the bottom line of any piece is there's a, an emotional response, which is to make money, save money, avoid effort, avoid pain, 
um, be altruistic, be attractive. Um, you know, when you're talking about the emotions, do you actually latch on to a couple of key words? I mean, how do you actually confine or refine that down to a, a manageable set of words? Yeah, so so it, it, it starts with those sorts of things that you were just talking about, those very primal emotional things. There has to be something at the root of a project that touches on one of those. And then it just takes a more specific form for the project. So for instance, um, I did a project for a, um, it was like an Uber of lawn care sort of uh, startup. You know, there were a bunch of those for a while and probably still are. Um, so obviously that's avoiding effort and that's to some extent presentation. So you can stop being ashamed of your, of your yard. But a lot of it was also like, why is it so, why is the, that industry still stuck in doing things like the internet doesn't exist where you call a guy on the phone and then hand him cash when he's done or whatever. This was maybe five years ago. Um, but then also there's a side to it that is um, everything to do with thinking about that perfect coming out, coming out of your house and there's that perfect green lawn there. There's, there's that shrubbery, there's this freshness, there's this ease, you know, <laughs> there's this, I mean, you think about movies, uh, you know, you think about Downton Abbey and you, not only it's about the castle, it's about all that green grass around it, you know? So, so for me, that was like trying to get to, okay, it'll be easy to find a guy to mow your lawn, but how do we get those touches around it that are going to make you like, ruling to have this awesome lawn, you know. So so that's that's what I mean by taking those really primal emotions and then tying those to the um the sort of triggers around that product that are gonna that are gonna set that off. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um do you work also, Jason, in terms of I talk about constraints and I know a lot of copywriters I talk to talk about how when the client says you can't say that and you can't say that, you know, don't mention that. It's really good because it eliminates choice. Um, can you talk about the constraints or the, the sort of the tensions that you work within that help you get a project started? Yeah, so I, I also really like to have the, the constraints very firmly mapped out from the beginning. So not only in terms of like, we want to avoid using this word or this phrase, um, but also where it's possible, um, what, once we've decided on a piece, on the pieces, very clear about what shape they have, if that makes sense. So um, if we're doing a piece of direct mail, like what do you want it to, do you want a big headline, one sentence, a phone number? Do you want a bunch of details? You know, trying to, trying to nail that down for me is, um, I just like having those choices made. And if the client really cares about them, I want them to tell me, because that's fine with me, whatever they want, you know, <laughs> as far as that goes, um, unless I have some other amazing idea, but, but usually like just having a container to fill and knowing what ingredients we can't put in there. Yeah, it makes the job so much easier. The, the, I'm one of those people who dreads like, Here's a blank page. Do whatever you want. You know? <laughs> then I have to think. Then I have to figure out what I want. Yeah, yeah, that's a, it's not a good situation. So, with the, your current role at Redbubble, um, talk us through the kind of content you write for them and the and who you write it for. 
So with Redbubble, since it's a marketplace uh, for artists to sell products with their original art, um, and we're talking, you know, everyday useful products, t-shirts, mugs, whatever we've got. Um, there are dozens of choices on the, on the website, but the point is these, our audience is looking for something meaningful. So, um, so we have to sort of make the case that um, you can find that perfect thing, that perfect gift, that thing that is a little inside joke between you and your friend, that thing that maybe not only you, but that thing that really suits you. It's your, it's your thing. You're going to find that on Redbubble when you can't find it anywhere else. You know, you go to Target and there are 10 t-shirts for sale. You go to Redbubble and you'll find thousands. Any, any, we even, we try to stump Redbubble sometimes where we're like, uh, is there a pineapple surfing? And yeah, of course there are a bunch of artworks of pineapple surfing. Um, so anyway, when we're speaking to our audience, we're trying to really um, encourage that feeling of expressing yourself through this original art. Um, so it's very different from, for instance, when I was a catch, which is a very commodity brand, like name brand discount store. That's very much about the transaction, you know, that's about catches where you go to find the stuff, more of the stuff your family needs and wants for less money. Um, with Redbubble, we're really trying to make the, uh, the audience feel like collaborators in, in creativity. You know, an artist created something, you saw it and were like, wow, that's perfect for me. Um, so, there, so there's definitely like a, a um, really strong element, like I said, of encouraging self-expression creativity, that sort of thing. Um, my job is to figure out how that uh, trickles down to, for instance, the copy on a page when um, you're making a purchase or when you're trying to tell which t-shirt do I, do I want to buy. Um, and sometimes, you know, um, clarity has to come first with a lot of that stuff. So the challenge to the job is where do you get that emotional side into the copy so that, like, I, I really believe that um, anywhere someone looks on our site, they should feel like it's us. So, um, you know, we have SEO copy on some pages that's sort of like half hidden, you know, it's way at the bottom of the page. You have to, you just see the first few lines, you have to click on it to read the whole thing. But if somebody clicks on it to read the whole thing, I want them to see that we've taken some care with this and that it's still us talking all the time. I wanna, I wanna reward people for their attention, whatever level of attention they're giving us. Because honestly, that's the commodity that is in the shortest supply is attention, more so than money, more so than, than anything. You know, that's, so basically I, yeah, that's my philosophy is always reward someone if they're paying attention to you. You know, make them, make them feel good. Be be nice, you know, just basic stuff like that. I'm so, not, I'm not being very articulate about this, but no, uh, no. So, what um, mediums do you work within? Like emails. You talked about SEO, web blogs, you know, video. What's what's sort of some of the mediums that you operate within? 
So in my current position, it's heavily focused on on-site copy and email. Um, Redbubble also has a creative team that does video um, and does, uh, you know, organic social and that kind of stuff. But I do on-site copy, SEO, um, UX, and uh, on-site promotions. Uh, so if there's a banner for a sale, I'm also usually then also doing the email for those promotions. Um, we do, you know, we do a lot of other forms of kind of content marketing, um, video campaigns, a blog, stuff like that. I, I am not as involved with that in the past. In other roles, I have been. So um, I have, you know, rudimentary video editing skills that I've used many times. Um, I've been in front of the camera many times because it's hard to get anybody else to do it. Um, I've, you know, I have, you know, some basic design skills um, for catch, for instance. Um, we were finding that a lot of the sort of meme content we were sharing was doing really well. So we thought, well, why don't we make some of our own, come up with our own jokes, uh, design them in a format that's branded and try those. And so for catch, our audience was um, primarily, uh, primarily suburban moms, basically 40, 40 ish uh, families. And so, yeah, so we just concentrated on writing a bunch of jokes that we hoped resonated with that audience. They weren't all about having kids or whatever. A lot of them were just general things about life, but, um, you know. Like, just an example of what the meme might have been. Uh, so, you know, we, I get a picture of a guy um, putting his bins out in front of the house and the caption would be something like, you know, got my workout in for the week or whatever. Or it would be, um, oh, there was another one. Uh, it was a picture of just some packed, a photo of just some packed shopping trolleys, like four or five lined up at the same, um, the same checkout. And this was before coronavirus, so it wasn't a panic buying thing. Um, <laughs> but then we'd have a picture like, you know, remind me, or we'd have the caption say, remind me not to go shopping when I'm hungry. You know, just that kind of stuff. Right. Um, basically, like responding to what our audience already liked and trying to be like, well, why don't we create some original stuff? Um, to me, like, yeah, I love sharing stuff, but I, I also, when you can create something original, that's that's what really sets you apart. So so let me just talk you through that. So you got the, the four shopping trolleys and and the joke. What What then? Is that just designed to get people's attention? and then they click through to something. What was the next part of the piece? So for that one, we, so we catch sold groceries. So we could put that up um, as the photo on an organic social post or even a paid social post um, and then have the copy for the post say, you know, don't let this happen to you. You know, get your, get your shopping done now uh, in our big grocery sale, you know, that kind of thing. Got it. Um, or for the workout one, like we sold a lot of workout gear. So, um, you know, making a joke about putting the bins out being your workout, you could have the copy say something like, you know, I think it might be time to step it up a little, you know, check out our fitness sale or whatever. Brilliant. I love the creativity because what you've done there, you've kind of exploded it out. 
to say, you know, we can go anywhere with this. As long as it's connected back to the grocery or the fitness piece, we can have a bit of fun and, and everyone loves a laugh. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's, and that's, I mean, that's what was fun about working at catch is this, we sold everything. So like almost, almost any joke you can think of. If we don't have an event up selling it now, we will in a few days. So like, yeah, it was, it was a fun, you know, sort of playground in that way. It was a lot different from Woot in that um, it was a different market. You know, it was a different audience. I think that's one of the, I don't know, not to go off on too big a tangent here, but one of the differences I found between the U.S. and Australia, the U.S. is so big that you can have a really specialized niche and still have a functioning business. And it's think it's more difficult in Australia uh, when you're talking e-commerce because actually Catch and Woot are about the same size. But Woot was able to do that concentrating on a geek audience. Catch had to go for a broader audience. But it's the same set of skills. You know, it's the same like, what what does your audience think is funny? What is credible? You know, what can you say that's not going to just immediately come across like generic BS? You know, (laughs) I think that's one of the things that um, sort of being a teenage punk rocker sort of gives you is like a uh, a BS detector, you know. <laughs> so, Jason, in terms of uh, Redbubble, and you talked about your emails, you must have multiple markets. Can you talk me through how you actually separate your target markets out through the the avatar process or the segmentation? You know, what does that look like? So, yeah, so that's true that there are several several markets. Um, the the audience for uh, T-shirts, for instance, is very different than the audience for uh, duvet covers. Um, it's really driven by um, our commercial team and our engagement team, sort of having some intelligence about what uh, who the audience is for a particular product or what audience um, do they think there's potential for that maybe we haven't addressed and that kind of thing. So we're lucky to have, um, you know, some very, very smart people doing this so that usually by the time it gets to me, um, that side of the brief is, is pretty clear. Um, what is not clear is how, we, how we're solving that problem. And so that's where the creative team comes in. In terms of uh, what a question I get asked a lot is, you know, you've got an email campaign, you've got a database, and how do you send different emails to different people? I mean, it's obviously a reasonably straightforward answer, but do you do that? Do you segment into multiple different segments and send each one of them different emails? Or do you send the one email with different kinds of content to attract different people? Um, yeah, so there are um, so there are personalized emails. Here are, your rec- here are the recommendations based on what you've been browsing. Um, there are, and then there are segmented emails where, yeah, this portion of our audience might be interested in this, this portion might be interested in that. Um, and, and that kind of audience segmentation is a, it's a, it's a whole discipline basically. (laughs) Um, fortunately I have not had to do much of it myself. Um, but there, you know, we've had at catch and at Redbubble, I've worked with people who, who really understand that, um, I, I've done a little bit of it. You can do that obviously with social media as well. So uh, when you're getting into paid social, you can 
you know, there are a lot of tools for sort of targeting that. I think uh, a business like Catch, which sells so many different things, we did more segmentation there than Redbubble probably does. Um, but with Catch, it was more a case of emphasis. So we'd have the same products in, a, in an email, but a different, different one at the top and a different subject line, um, for instance. Um, but the, the whole world of segmentation, it's one of those things that um, as a copywriter, I don't know, this is getting into kind of a different, <laughs> a different area, but as a copywriter, uh, especially freelance, especially starting out, the more you can know about these sorts of things, the better I've found because the most receptive and in, frankly interesting work I've done as a freelancer has been with startups. And startups generally are not going to have a whole engagement marketing team or a whole segmentation or a segmentation expert or even an SEO person. You know, so the more you can learn about those things, even the basics, if you can, if you can pick up the basic cadence for um, an onboarding email segment. So I've just signed up to your website. When do I get my first email? When's my second? What is it telling me? Uh, being able for me to pick up a lot of those things um, has been really helpful because startups, that, that's what they need, you know? So loving writing is great, but if you're, if you're just starting out, uh, for me, it always comes back to the writing. The craft of writing is what I really enjoy. But being able to say like, oh, hey, um, yeah, I know, you know, I know a little bit about that. Do you need somebody to do that? Yeah. Um, and audience segmentation, like I said, I know a little bit about it, but it's just enough that it can come in, come in handy. But I'm sorry. I, I, feel like I'm really, I feel like I'm really rambling. I'm sorry. No, no, it's fa fabulous and, and incredibly interesting because it's what copywriters need to know. And it's a nice segue, Jason, in terms of um, for someone starting out, and a lot of people listening to this will be maybe at the early stage of their career. Uh, can you maybe reflect on, you know, what, you did even though it was a while back, but what could they do to, let's say they're already working in a job full-time, you know, but they really want to be a copywriter. What techniques or strategies would you suggest they use to try and build up their experience and their portfolio if they can't really get out of the office to even meet anybody? Right. So I think, um, so this is a, this is a touchy question about how you build a portfolio when you, you don't have one. Um, for me, the biggest jump was from sort of zero pieces to one piece that I could show people. So for me, it made a lot of sense to try to um, talk to friends, talk to local businesses, talk to anybody I could think of, offer to do something, if necessary, for free. Um, I don't think it's a good idea to, to accept a lot of things that are offered to you for free because um, when they're driven by you, they can be something you're passionate about, something you're interested in. You can feel good about it. You can, it, it can build your confidence. Whereas I think doing a lot of unpaid work for people and businesses you don't care about, actually you, you do start to devalue uh, what you do. You know? So I would say try if you want to break into being a copywriter, see if, you know, if you have a friend who has a business, 
offer to write a couple of social media posts or a flyer or whatever they need. You know, um, to me, that sort of that's good getting your foot in the door, doing a lot of picking up free jobs that are listed on the Internet. Um, I, I would I would not really encourage that, because, like I said, that's just you're, you're getting so little out of that other than I did this thing and I can show it to people. I mean, I, I would say, yeah, start seeing seeing who you have close at hand that you could do a little work for um, that you would also feel good about helping out your friend's business or doing something you're interested in, whatever. Um, but then beyond that, I think, um, as I said, the more sort of related things you can know a little bit about, the more useful you're going to be to any startup, any entrepreneur, any crazy idea that might turn into an amazing idea like, like Woot did. Um, actually, when I started at Woot, I was not only copywriting, I was also uh, moderating the forums and I did various other sort of odd jobs because there wasn't, they wanted me around, but there wasn't quite enough writing work and I was able to wear a couple hats and, you know, um, and it really helped. And for a lot of the other startups I've done, I've helped them with things that were not really copywriting, but I'd worked with it before. So that's really useful. But I think also, and this is more maybe abstract, is sort of realizing that you, your unique perspective is really what is going to, to be valuable. You know, so um, yes, you, you, should, you should know what other people are, are doing. You should keep up with ads. You should, I, I love reading old ads and watching old commercials, you know, just, yeah, you should always be exposing yourself to kind of the industry, um, but also what you have to offer is going to be what makes you valuable. And what makes, what makes you, what leads to those opportunities that are, um, that not only pay the bills, but are also super satisfying. So, um, so I would just, it's not easy when you're starting out to sort of summon that courage up. Um, I think there were times when I got in my own way and sort of didn't um, put myself forward as much as I should have um, and sort of devalued that original perspective because I was trying to live up to some, somebody else's idea of what I thought I should be doing. Um, but I think as much as you can get your own self into it and have the courage to do that, um, really the more opportunities you're going to have. Brilliant. I want to finish with one question here, Jason. So if, if a copywriter is trying to stand out, uh, you know, they're trying to get a job, maybe they're sitting in front of you on a Zoom call, or even just their application is on your desk. What should they do or what strategies can they use to maybe stand out? So when I've hired copywriters in the past, um, I look for a little bit of that daring. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a subjective thing um, because there, there can also be, there were also some applicants that were just obnoxious. <laughs> so it's a, it's a subjective thing, but um, these people not only had daring, but it was clear they were familiar with what we were doing. And so they were able to present that in a way that um, where they stood out as original, but it was also very easy to see how they'd slot in with what we were doing. Um, so I think just like, you, you just, you can't be timid, you know, but the smarter you are about it, the better as well. So um, 
I would say like some intelligently deployed weirdness is is what's going to get what's going to get attention. Yeah. That's uh, it, it reminds me of what Gabby, I interviewed him for this podcast too, and he said that he was hiring a copywriter and she actually went out and and wrote copy her application, you know, from the catch website. So she literally redid something and that just really stood out for him. And it said she went the extra mile, which is all you're really trying to demonstrate, isn't it? That you're just prepared to be a bit different. Exactly. Yeah. And that, you know, that shows that, again, you're familiar with what this company is doing. You, rather than telling someone how you're going to do it, just, just, just do a little bit of it. Give them, give them a taste. Yeah, I definitely, that always stood out to me as well. When somebody would, would apply to a job at Woot or whatever and, and have a Woot piece ready to go, I was like, that they're top of the pile immediately. Well, that's a great way to finish. So Jason, thank you for your wonderful insights and sharing your, your career and uh, you know, what you've achieved and how you've done that. And is there any way people can get in touch with you? Yeah, so I mean, I have a website that has a lot of this Woot stuff on it called jasontoonwrites.com. And, um, and I'm on LinkedIn and I'm on Twitter at Jason Toon. Um, I might rant about American politics on there a little more than, uh, than people have an appetite for, but you can definitely get a hold of me through there. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always open to talking about anything. So um, feel free to reach out. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jason. What amazes me about copywriting is there are so many pathways to it and so many pathways after it. You just never know what's around the corner. From being poached from St. Louis, Missouri, to living in Australia, working at the leading edge of commerce. Copywriting can take anyone a long way, as it has done for Jason. My inspirational tip of the day, the key to success is to start before you're ready. My writing tip of the day, do not start work until you have the word count sorted out. And my joke of the day, I don't trust stairs. They're always up to something. If you'd like to learn more about our copywriting courses, you can visit writercenter.com.au or copyschool.com and see what course is best for you. So connect with me on LinkedIn if you'd like to hear more inspirational stories like this. And I'm Bernadette and stay tuned for our next podcast. All the best, take care and bye-bye.